Well, out of all the words favoured by the news anchors as they struggle to describe what we're going through at the moment, one of the most used has to be unprecedented. The closure of schools, people working from home, unprecedented. The chaos in the markets, unprecedented. The panic buying we're seeing locally and across the country, unprecedented. The cancellation of church services, weddings, baptisms, unprecedented. These are unprecedented times. And it can feel like everything has changed. Our daily experience, our routines, our expectations, our plans, our hopes and our dreams. But it's not quite true that everything has changed. If anything, what has happened, what is happening in the world, has brought into sharper focus the big background truths of our lives that have always been there, but which most of the time, most of us manage to ignore. It's taken away the illusion of control that we thought we had over our lives. The columnist Simon Heffer, writing earlier this week, said, the rights that we assumed we had acquired to consistent good health and far longer life are under threat. We are about to discover that the state does not, after all, for all the wonders of the NHS, scientific research and welfareism, have a magic wand it can wave to restore certainty. All our assumptions about every aspect of existence are being challenged by the very forces of nature many thought progress had made subservient to humankind. We are, above all, being asked to contemplate the greater immediacy of death. The foreground to our lives, our daily experience, has changed radically. But the background has not changed. Because of course, the biggest fear underlying all our fears about the coronavirus is the old fear the great fear, the fear of death. Fear of our own death and fear of the deaths of those that we love. C.S. Lewis in his lecture, Learning in Wartime, his words so long ago are utterly relevant to our day. What does war, or the coronavirus we might say, what does war do to death? It certainly doesn't make it more frequent. 100% of us die and the percentage cannot be increased. Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. War, or the coronavirus, makes death real to us. And so questions that we may have pushed to the back of our minds have been dragged forwards and placed unavoidably front and centre. If we're not in control, and the state is not in control, who is in control? Is anyone? Is God? And if he is, can we trust him? Why would God let this happen? Can we trust him with our sufferings? Can we trust him with our troubles? Can we trust him with our death? Why doesn't God do something? Well, our reading today comes from John chapter 11. And in that passage, it deals with all of those issues, illness, death, and questioning God. And Grace is going to read for us. We're reading from John chapter 11 and starting at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, 
And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary at the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So Lazarus, the brother of two sisters, Mary and Martha, has died. And there's one question on everyone's lips. Why didn't Jesus do something? Martha and Mary both come to Jesus with the same question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the crowd. In verse 37, they say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the man born blind also have kept this man from dying? They're referring back to a miracle that happens in chapter 9 of John. And the crowds are effectively saying, so this Jesus, this 
man of God. We know he's powerful. He's shown that. The other day he healed a man born blind. He created new working eye sockets where there were no working eyes before. No one's ever done anything like that. So why didn't he do something this time? Doesn't he care? Is he someone we can trust? And here's why that question matters when asked of Jesus. In chapter 10, just before the events that we had read, the crowd in Jerusalem has tried to kill Jesus. What was his crime? His crime was claiming to be God. See, Christianity says that God didn't stay in heaven looking on from a distance, away from the suffering, away from the sickness, away from the pain and the death in our world. He came to earth and he suffered. Jesus was not just a man of God, he was God. And so when we look at Jesus, we look at God, which means that rather than asking our question in the abstract, can I trust a vague idea of God with my suffering, my troubles, my death? We can ask it specifically, can we trust Jesus? Can we trust Jesus with our fears, even our biggest fears? See, Mary and Martha, they thought they knew Jesus, but then they both greet him with the same words of disappointment. Martha's come in verse 21, Mary's identical question comes in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept is a famous verse, the shortest verse in the Bible. But it's a strange verse. Why does Jesus weep? If you know the story, have you ever thought how weird that is? Jesus knows that within minutes, he is gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. An hour's time, and Lazarus is gonna be breathing, walking, talking, and laughing again. So Jesus isn't crying because he misses Lazarus. He's not crying because he wishes he'd had a bit more time with him. Rather, Jesus weeps at death itself, and the pain and the disruption that it causes. There's something profoundly unnatural about death that belies its predictability. Whether it's a death like that of my dad's parents, killed by a dangerous driver when I was 10, or of my best friend from primary school, Alex, who took his own life age just 33. Or whether it's a death at the end of a long, full life like that of my mum's parents, who each lived to age 93. Every death is a tragedy. At every one of those funerals, we wept. Death should not come as any great surprise to us. As Lewis said, 100% of us die. But we still inevitably feel every time that this is not how it should be. We feel that death should not be allowed to shatter life in this way. And Jesus feels the same way. As he stands 
at a grave, God in human form weeps. God is not removed from suffering, coolly, calmly, sitting in a rocking chair in heaven. In Jesus, we see God weep. And he weeps because this is not how the world was supposed to be, with car crashes and suicides and cancer and coronavirus. Jesus was there at the beginning, when he and his father made this world good, all good. And he was there when humanity rebelled against its creator, said, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. And suffering and pain entered into our world in a way that they hadn't before. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying we can draw a straight line between individual acts of rebellion and suffering for them. We're not talking about karma here. Jesus himself rules that out in John chapter 9. But instead, it is that our turning away from God as a human race that caused a rupture, not only in the relationship between us and God, but also the relationship between human and human and in the creation itself like cracks in a pane of glass that is shattered, spreading out from the point of impact. So the consequences of sin spread far and wide as the very creation itself becomes cursed. Still with echoes of all that made it good, satisfaction in work, joy in family and relationships, the beauty of nature. But every one of these broken and damaged. And doesn't that describe our experience? Work is satisfying sometimes, and frustrating often, and many right now are having to work out new ways of doing their jobs or worrying that they're gonna have no job at all or already without work. Relationships bring great joy, but also some of the greatest pain that we can feel. The natural world is beautiful, but broken, majestic, but deadly, it gives us forests and mountains, whales and dolphins, lions and tigers, eagles and elephants, and cancer and coronavirus. As Jesus walks in our shoes and sees the brokenness of this world, as he sees and experiences our pain, he weeps. Does he care? God cares. But is that it? Are tears all that Jesus can offer? A sympathetic shoulder? Because if so, that's a bit useless. Well, I've already given away the end, but read with me from verse 39. Jesus' command is brief, take away the stone. Martha, ever the practical one, objects. Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus replies, and I think he would have said these words gently. Did I not tell him that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they take away the stone and Jesus says, verse 43, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, what a happy ending. Lazarus is back. Mary and Martha are reunited with their brother. But this story is not a happy ending for Jesus. Because coming back to the village of Bethany, so close to the city of Jerusalem, to the village of Bethany, so close to the city of Jerusalem, 
where not long before they had tried to kill Jesus, was a risk. And bringing someone back from the dead is not a good way to stay low profile. So now those who had tried to kill Jesus before, rather than conceding that they might have been wrong because he's raised someone from the dead, instead they decide that Jesus is a problem. Read with me from verse 45. We didn't have this read, it's just across the page, probably, depending what Bible you're using. Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And shortly afterwards, they succeed. Succeed in putting an innocent man to death because it was expedient for the political and religious establishment to do so. How could God allow that? How could God allow an innocent man to be falsely tried, convicted and murdered? for convenience. Well, Jesus' death wasn't pointless. Jesus lived a perfect life. Those who knew him best said they never once knew him to say or do anything wrong. He alone of the entire human race deserved never to have to face any suffering. He deserved to live and not die. And as he was mocked, and spat on and beaten. As he died in agony, fixed to a wooden cross with nails through his hands and feet. As bystanders scoffed, Pharisees laughed, soldiers jeered. His own mother stood watching. Imagine the sword of grief that pierced her heart. What possible reason could there be for her innocent son to suffer this way? The inevitable cry of why, God? Where are you? Don't you care? Jesus' followers gave up, ran away and hid. They couldn't see any reason at all. It looked like the worst evil possible. But actually, it was the greatest moment in human history. Where we as a race failed to live in the right with God, Jesus succeeded. Where our rebellion brought curse, Jesus' obedience, even going willingly to an unjust death, brings the possibility for the reversal of that curse as he dies in our place to take away our sin. And so although this means that we may not have specific answers for why this suffering, why me, why then? Why now? Why for so long? I can't tell you what suffering is, but I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. We know he loves us. He sent his son to die for us. God gave his son. God came and shared our grief, 
Jesus died for us. God has wounds. He loves you. One big question remains. If Jesus' death was to end suffering, well, when will it end? If it hasn't already, what guarantee have we got that it will? Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus' raising of Lazarus was a prototype of his own resurrection because although Jesus' wounds put him in the grave, they couldn't keep him there. Three days later, he came back from the dead, never to die again. Physically, bearing the scars of his injuries but no longer feeling their effects, hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him. Dozens of people spoke with him, ate with him, and touched him. And just as the first apple in the orchard signifies that the rest of the harvest will follow, so Jesus' resurrection signifies that we too will rise and that a return to the perfection that we lost is possible. One of the most striking Bible descriptions of this renewed world is notable for being cast as the absence of suffering. This is Revelation chapter 21. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's a poignant moment right at the end of the third Lord of the Rings book, where Sam the Hobbit, after discovering that Gandalf is not dead, as he thought, cries out, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer to that question in Jesus is yes. Everything sad will come untrue. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a pie in the sky, hope against the evidence pipe dream. It's a certain hope because of the evidence, as certain as Lazarus standing outside his grave, blinking in the sunlight, looking anew on a world he thought he'd never see again. As certain as Jesus standing on the shore of Lake Galilee, cooking fish over a fire to eat with his bewildered disciples who thought they'd lost him forever. A world with no more coronavirus, no more fear, no more uncertainty, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. In these times, as it feels like everything has changed, and day to day many things have changed and more will change over the coming days and weeks, remember whatever we face, in the months and years ahead, we know without question, God loves us. He gave his son for us. And we know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in him will live even though they die. What a wonderful hope. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful promise that those who believe in the Lord Jesus will live even though they die, that this is a hope that goes beyond our circumstances and even beyond death itself. And we pray that you'd fix that in our hearts in these days and until our dying day.
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.